0: Well, welcome. My name's Ross Gilbert, and welcome to, to New Life. For those of you here for the first time, and uh, we're excited about this morning and uh, and what God's got for us. In uh, in John, uh, sorry, Matthew, Jesus teaches us that uh, windows are a, an, uh, sorry, the eyes of a person are the windows into a person's most innermost being. And and I found this to be true, uh, not just um, you know in, in terms of helping people, but just it's amazing to be able to look into someone's eyes and begin to really discern what's going on. Because I've found that people will say one thing with their words, they might say something else with their body language, but their eyes never lie. And so there's much to be learned just by looking someone in the eyes. Well, next month for the, the Gilbert family, we are embarking, we'll have a a, a very special anniversary. It'll be a seven-year anniversary for us. Uh, you see, it was uh, late on a, a Wednesday morning in the middle of October that I got a phone call uh, from my wife, Joy, asking me to come home. And this had become a, a bit more of a regular occurrence at this point, uh, she was struggling we just had uh, our fifth kid in seven years uh, a couple months earlier and uh, so Caleb was was just a few months old still nursing still not sleeping uh, she had a bunch of other kids and uh, and so it was amazing because the kids would take turns as to who would keep her up at night because it's hard work keeping your parent up at night all the time so they shared the workload amongst the five of them that was really nice of them I thought so they kind of all helped out and uh, and kept her up and uh, so she just stopped sleeping. And when, when the kids actually slept through the night, then her legs would jump and that would keep her up. And so she was extremely sleep deprived and, and just struggling with life. And uh, so she would, she would often give me a phone call and I would try to talk to her about it, or uh, I would come home sometimes to help her. And again, this was happening on a more often, more regular basis. And so I kind of had a routine. Every time I'd come home, I would sort of get the kids sorted and looked after. We were homeschooling the kids. And so I often feed them some food, feed them lunch, and then send them off to a quiet time. And that would allow me then to turn my attention on to joy. And then I could look after her, get her something to eat, and then have her have a a sleep, a, a rest, uh, hoping that she would wake up feeling refreshed and ready to go on and face the next day. It was a matter of very much trying to just put out the fire to uh, to move forward. Well, this day, almost seven years ago, uh, was different. I came home and, again, took care of the kids and put them to, to their quiet time. And uh, then when I came to look after Joy, she she didn't want to eat. And she didn't want to sleep. And she didn't even want to speak. And right before me, before my very eyes, I see her shutting down. And so I remember, and this is probably what I remember the most of that day. This, this is a picture that has been burned into my mind. I remember looking into her eyes and just seeing emptiness. And it, it occurred to me that my beautiful bride, my, my um, wonderful wife, she had lost hope. You know, hope's one of those things that we don't realize how important it is until we don't have it. It's sort of like air. We take air for granted. But if you were to take air away from someone, you put them underwater, they will quickly discover how significant and important air is. And so once hope is gone, then, then we experience the despair and we experience uh, experience death. One one author, he described the hope in this way. He said, uh Totally without hope, one cannot live. To live without hope is is to cease to live. Hell is hopelessness. It's no accident that above the entrance to Dante's hell is the inscription, leave behind all hope you who enter here. It's in the first half of John chapter 10 and verse 10, where Jesus warns us of the attack of the enemy. And he says, the enemy, the thief, has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And, and he, he does this in many ways. But I think one of the, the primary or most effective ways he does this is he, he destroys and takes away a person's hope. because. As I thought about it, when you lose hope, everything else around you begins to crumble. Everything else begins to fall apart. So hopelessness or despair can happen as a result of one single tragic event where where something that we have been trusting in, something that we love, something that we've placed our hope in has been taken away. It could be when a, a parent loses a child or maybe it's when innocence is shattered through some kind of abuse or rape or assault. It could happen at the discovery of a, the, of a loved one's betrayal, someone that we had so trusted in, so, so opened ourselves to, we let all the guards down, let all the, the safeties aside, and let them inside to the deepest part of us where they took advantage of us and hurt us. Or it could happen over a series of events, a series of of minor events, seemingly minor. And here it's where our enemy repeatedly whispers into our minds about how broken and flawed we are, so broken and flawed that you can't ever be healed. And so this problem is so deep in our mind, it's so deep entwined with our soul, we feel like it can never be removed. And so it begins with these continual feelings of guilt and shame, inadequacy, unworthiness. And, and we get so desperate to fight against it, we, we do everything we can trying to overcome, try to change that thought, change that message, and hoping that we can overcome the voice that accuses us. Except it's never enough. There's nothing you can do. And worst of all, that voice just begins to mock us for our vain attempts, So we try to avoid and push away that nagging voice through distraction like friends and work and entertainment and, and if necessary, the sinful behaviors we employ. But nothing works. And instead, kind of like throwing water on a grease fire hoping to extinguish it, it just makes it spread and makes it bigger. It just can't seem to overcome it. And so our hope that things will get better begins to evaporate. Now, fortunately, Jesus didn't only speak of the enemy's plan in John 10.10. He also spoke of his plan. And while the enemy, the thief, has come to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus says, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I have come to heal up the brokenhearted. I have come to set the captives free. He's come to restore hope to us, a hope that's not just for the sweet by and by, because at that point, what do we need hope for? The hope that he's come to give us is for today. It's a, a hope that will allow us to face each day, each struggle, each moment, each problem with a resolve and a strength that can overcome the voice of the enemy. The theologian Lewis Smedes, he described hope this way. Hope is to our spirits what oxygen is to our lungs. Lose hope, and you die. They may not bury you for a while, but without hope, you are dead inside. The only way to face the future is to fly straight into it on the wings of hope. He went on to say, hope is the energy of the soul. Hope is the power of tomorrow. And I would go even further and say it's the, it's the power of today. It's what we need today. So this morning, I hope, no pun intended, that we're going to discover what is our hope. Where do we place our hope? Whom do we place it upon to allow us not just to face life, but be more than a conqueror in all this? So our passage this morning, uh, we're going to begin in verse 15 of, of uh, chapter 1 of Ephesians, but we're really going to focus in on verse 17 and 18 this morning. But let's begin in verse 15. You can read along on the screen up here. Paul writes, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, While making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm excited about what you have in store for us this morning. I'm excited about the the message of freedom that, that you want to share with all of us. And I pray that no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're up against, that we would see you in your face. We would see your love, that we would hear your voice speak to each and every one of us. Louder than the enemy screams or whispers or attacks, we would hear from you. Thank you for what you're about to do. In your name we pray, amen. Well, there's four times in the epistles that we see Paul tells us exactly what he's praying for in his readers. And we said two of those times, we see that in the book of Ephesians. And so last time we were here, we were were kind of beginning to unpack that first prayer. And and it begins really in verses 15. And we noted that Paul's prayer was not just for great miracles or healings. It wasn't even for this, this massive come to Jesus moment in the, in the city of Ephesus. Rather, he was praying for something that you and I, that the saints of Ephesus, but also the saints today, the saints of New Life Fellowship, would be granted a deep spiritual wisdom in a spiritual revelation, where the covers are ripped off, where the mysteries are revealed to us, that we can see clearly and completely who God is. And we saw that Paul used this for describing the knowledge of God. At the end of verse 17, he used the word epigenosis, which is just, I mean, its it sounds epic, because it's got kind of the root of that, right? It says epigenosis. This genosis means to know intimately and fully. And so Paul is praying that we would have this epic, full, complete, intimate knowledge of God, right? That that we would know him as this glorious father, the one whom Jesus loved and the one who loves Jesus. And again, it's not just a knowledge about who he is, but a personal, intimate relationship where God knows man and man knows God. That's his prayer. That's his desire. And, uh, and we saw that he prayed this because as you all shared with me last time we were here, that we know that if we could understand God this way, if we could really see God and know God in that intimate way, then that would change how we live. And it would change how we live because it would change how we see him and how we see ourselves. We begin to have confidence in who we are. One theologian described this way about Paul's prayer. He said, Paul now prays that he will open their eyes so that they will fully grasp the implications of all these privileges. Unlike many contemporary Christians, the apostle does not pray for fresh spiritual blessings as though he was unaware of the fact that God has graciously given every spiritual privilege in Christ. On the other hand, Paul does not want his readers to become complacent. He does not assume that because everything is theirs in Christ, that they do not need to grow in their understanding or experience of these Christian blessings. Hence, his intercession for them. John Stott puts it aptly, "Where Paul, what Paul does in Ephesians 1 and therefore encourages us to copy is both to keep praising God that in Christ all spiritual blessings are ours, and to keep praying that we may know the fullness of what he has given to us. So verse 18, now he's going to continue that prayer. He's going to begin to sort of unpack what it is that we want to to know intimately about God. And so he prays in verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. That eyes of your heart is, is probably a phrase that Paul's familiar with from the, from the book of Psalms. And it's this idea that is again, this, this truth that you're being able to see at the core of who you are. It's not a superficial understanding. It's, it's all the way to the dip, the depth of who you are within your spirit. And this idea of being enlightened means that all this, this light will be shone on the truth. And so we're seeing it. Everything's exposed. But what's interesting, I think, is how Paul wrote the phrase in the, in the original Greek In the grammar there could probably be better translated this way. Having had and continuing to have the eyes of your heart enlightened. See, what's significant about this is that it's this understanding that we've already been given that it's not something we need to attain to. It's not something that we need to now chase after, this enlightenment or this revelation. It's been given to us already. See, he's not giving us a command. He's telling us what's already ours, having already been given, already having our eyes open, already having the light shone on there, already having that enlightenment, and continuing to this day that we may know. Now, the word that Paul uses here for know is different than the one in verse 17, right? The word verse 17, the epigenosis, the root word of that gnosis is to know, and it means to know intimately. It means to know personally. When they translated the Old Testament into Greek and it talked about how Adam knew Eve and she conceived a child, they used the word gnosis because it was an intimate knowledge. It wasn't just to know about, it was to know personally. And that's what Paul Paul uses in verse 17. But in verse 18 now, Paul's going to use a different word for know. He's going to use the Greek word oida. And the Greek word oida is to know about. It's an informational knowledge. It's more of what we call a head knowledge. Now, that really threw me. I was really surprised at that at first. Because I would I would much rather have a gnosis knowledge. I would much rather have an intimate knowledge than just simply a head knowledge. And so I was confused. I thought, well, Paul, why would you pray that we would have a head knowledge here after already praying about this intimate experiential knowledge? Wouldn't it make sense that you would be praying for that here again? And I thought about it, and I pondered about it. And then it began to make sense to me that This idea here of this revelation, this idea here of this enlightenment that we've already been given and we are continuing to experience isn't something about a feeling. It's not an emotional knowledge. It really is simply about knowing this in our minds, in our understanding. See, sometimes I hear people, they pray this, they say, I'm waiting for this revelation. I'm waiting for this enlightenment that might maybe Paul would have called it. I'm praying that God's gonna open my eyes to show me that he loves me or to show me that I am forgiven or to show me that I'm accepted. And so they're, they're praying this prayer for God to show them what they already know. And, and that's not a prayer that Paul's praying for because it's already been shown to us. The question isn't, do you know it? The question is really, do you believe it? Do you trust it? So Paul's not giving us a command or telling us what needs to happen. He's telling us what's already taken place. But too often, we're waiting for the feeling to verify the truth. But the question is, will I trust it, whether I feel it or not? For example, People often say, I know I'm love, but I can't trust that love until I feel his love. But it's backwards. It's the wrong way around. Paul's telling us that the knowledge we require is not a feeling, or it's not even something that you experience. Rather, it's the kind of thinking that changes how we think. It changes what we know by renewing our minds and transforming us as we mature. Think about Romans 12, and verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by renewing of your thinking. That's the oida part of it, right? It's this incredible truth that we shared a couple months back about truth that's trusted transforms, right? Whatever, you, whatever truth you hold to, if it's the truth of God or the lies we believe, that's what you're gonna ultimately trust in. And whatever you trust in, that's what's gonna conform you. So if you're listening to the voice of the enemy, if you're listening to the world, if you're listening to the lies that you've, you've believed about yourself, that's what you're gonna trust in and that's how you're gonna live out of and that's what's gonna transform how you live and how you behave. But if we can learn the truth of who God is and the truth of who you are, and we can begin to trust in that truth, then that transforms how we live. That begins to transform our behavior. And so that's why Paul was praying that we would have this oida, this knowledge, because that would begin to influence now our thinking, which could influence our trusting, which leads to the transformation. So this morning, we're going to look at, really, there's there's three things that Paul says I want you to need to know. And he's going to list them here. We're only going to look at the first one this morning. But he's saying this. He's praying that since God has already shone light into the depths of our hearts, giving us the ability to see truth through a spiritual wisdom and revelation, fully knowing God, that we might know the hope that is our calling. See, the problem with hope is not that we lose it sometimes. The problem with hope is is that we've placed it in the wrong, pla- wrong person or the wrong places. We're trusting in the wrong things. See, here, Paul, he's talking about hope in a guaranteed sense. It's absolute. It's not in question. It's not in doubt. It's going to happen. Whereas we tend to place hope in things that are unreliable and not trustworthy. See, we often, we place our hopes in our jobs or in our finances, hoping that they will provide for us and our families, hoping that they will give us a sense of security and significance. But then that job situation gets a little bit shaky. And suddenly, you know, my boss isn't too pleased with me. Suddenly, I'm not seeing the results that I hoped for. Suddenly there's rumors of, of my industry or my plant or my, my company being sold or shutting down because of the, t- the downturn. And so suddenly my hope begins to diminish. Or we place hope in people, in our family, in our friends, in children, in a spouse, and maybe even in a church family, believing that they're going to meet all of our needs. And, and then silence. The voice of shame. Finally, these people love me. Finally, these people accept. Everything's going to be OK until they fail, until they make a mistake. And I, I experienced that, that hurt and that wound. And now the voice, of shame, the voice of shame is louder because it says, you're all alone. It's up to you. Your hope is in yourself. And you know how inadequate that is. And while God may use our jobs, relationships, the church, and others, I believe he wants to use all those things. They are not the source of our hope. The source of our hope is a person. I Hate to say it, but there is a, a song we, we sang this morning. There's one line in there. And it said, the hope of the world is what? The church. No. We are not the hope of the world. We carry the hope of the world, but we are not the hope of the world. The hope of the world is Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul writes this. He says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Hope is a person, Jesus. But it's also in what he's done on the cross. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says this, the word or the message, the teaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, to us who are experiencing the hope of God, we've discovered that teaching, that message, that word of the cross is the power of God. You see, what is our hope? Our hope is Jesus Christ in the finished work of Calvary. That's our hope. So we want to take a deeper look at that this morning. We want to take a deeper look at understanding the cross. and We're going to look at three aspects of the cross. There's, there's so many more things we could have looked at, but then I want to look at three this morning. And the first one is I want to look at is the fact that Jesus died for us so that we would be ransomed, that we'd be redeemed and forgiven from all our sins so that we can now be washed pure and clean. Romans 3.23, says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. We've lied, we've cheated, we've manipulated, we've controlled, we've lusted, we've abused, we've taken advantage of others, we've stolen, we've bullied, we've slept with people we're not supposed to. We've all done those things. Some of you did all those things like you were playing Sin Bingo. Right where it was like, I just got to connect the line here and I just got to, if I could steal from someone, I got a straight shot and I'm going to win, right? And so some of us, we just went overboard on all those things. But it doesn't matter if, if you sinned a lot like Craig or you sinned very little like Janice. The reality is we're all in the same boat. What we did In that sin, we gambled that that sin was going to provide life to us, that somehow we would escape the the consequences of sin, which is always death. But the reality is, because of that sin, you were bought or you are now owned by Satan. He had right to you. He had possession of you. And the only way the only way that we could be free, like that video, so beautifully said and spoke. The only way that you and I could be free is to have Jesus, the perfect, innocent, and blameless one, die on a cross in our place. And in doing so, his death ransomed us, meaning his death paid the debt that you owed to Satan, meaning Satan no longer had right to you. He paid the debt. He bought all of that debt, all of it. He now owned our debt. But here's what's incredible. Instead of now using that debt and lording it over us and saying, well, because I purchased you, because I bought the debt, now you owe me. Now you need to start behaving and doing this, this, and this. He says, I release the debt. I send it away. So what it really means to forgive, it means to send it away, to to take care of it's gone. It's removed it. So he doesn't hold it against us anymore. And there's no more debt. You're clean. You're pure. You're completely innocent and spotless now. Blameless and holy, it said earlier in in chapter 1, verse 3. Now, many of you are sitting here and you're thinking, well, yeah, that's true for Sue. But it's not true for me. Because you don't know what I've done. You don't, you don't know how many times I did it and who I did it with and, and, and how often I gave myself over to it and, and how, how I'm gonna continue to do it. I, I just, I'll never be clean. I just, it can't ever be true of me. And our problem there is you're so focused on you and your sin, you lost sight of how big Jesus is. Because Jesus is bigger. Than Ian's sin and Richardson and Sheila's sin and Kat's sin and Dale's sin and my sin. He's bigger than all of it. And he freed all of us from it so that you and I can be clean and pure. Not one day, today and forever. But that's just the start. Oh, the cross is so so immense. It's huge. Not only did he wash you, he does something to us. Because you see, the problem is, if that's all it was, if it's was only forgiveness of sins, it doesn't change me. Yeah, it cleaned up the mess behind me, but I'm still the mess inside. And so God does something even more dramatic. He takes you not just your sins, he put your sins on Jesus, but now he takes you, took Mike and he placed Mike into Christ on that cross. You were baptized, united with Jesus on that cross. So when Jesus died, something happened to you and I. We died, we were buried. Galatians two and verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives. That old, shameful, no good, dirty, rotten sinner was crucified and buried never to see the light of day again. You are not, and let me say it again and again, you are not a sinner saved by grace. You were a sinner, but the sinner died and he's gone no longer exists. We need to get rid of that really bad theology, that lie, out of our heads. You're not a sinner anymore. You're a saint. You're a holy one. So I know where in scripture does Paul call us sinners saved by grace. He doesn't write to the church of Ephesus saying, to the sinners of Ephesus. He says to the saints, the holy ones. You are someone new and different, a brand new creation. Loved because you're now lovable. Accepted because you're now acceptable. Worthy because you've been made significant. You've changed at the core of who you are. Everything's different now. And sadly, that, that part of the truth is so often neglected, but it's where, where freedom comes to, because if I don't know I'm a new person, I'm going to chase after trying to become someone I'm not. I'm going I'm to try to change who I am not realizing I already have been changed. I'm going to fight against someone that doesn't exist anymore. And it's only going to leave me tired and worn out and exhausted. But God says, don't you know? Don't you know it's already happened? That you've been set free because you died and you no longer live, but Christ now lives in you. And that's that third part now. That's so amazing to me, is that not only are we been forgiven, washed clean and made pure, not only have we been made holy and blameless as a brand new creation, but now Jesus Christ himself comes and takes up residence inside of you and I. He came to live in you. As one friend of mine says, you are God's dream home. That what he desired and what he longed for was to take up residence inside of you, to live in you so that now he can live his life through you. See, he's not up in heaven looking down on earth hoping that you're going to make good choices and get your life together. He's inside us right here, right now. And that, to me, is what's so amazing. That's why there's so much hope for us in this world. Because what it means is that his life, his power, his love, his compassion, his strength, his wisdom, his kindness, his gentleness is available to me in every moment. See, it doesn't guarantee that I'm going to have pleasant circumstances around me. It doesn't guarantee that I'm going to go through life and I'm not going to have any more problems now. He's going to help me and make all the right choices, sort of like that choose your adventure novel, where I'm going to make all the right choices. And I'll get to the end, successful, and not kind of walk off a cliff somewhere. That's not what it's about. It's that no matter what I face, no matter what trial I'm up against, I've got the life of Jesus in me. So that moment, almost seven years ago, staring into the the lifeless eyes of my wife, I needed all kinds of things. I needed strength. I needed wisdom. I need compassion. See, what good would it have been me to to look down on my wife and say, well, you just got to buck up and try harder? Come on. Let's go. Don't give up. Keep going. That's not what she needed. She needed a break. She needed a rest. And God showed me that. And he says, this is how we're going to do it. And so Christ, through me, loved my beautiful bride. And I trusted him to do that. And that's what he wanted to do. Let me share an example. Of, uh, of what this kind of hope looks like. There's a story of a man named, uh, he became an admiral later on, but a man named Jim Stockdale. And he was a, a POW, a prisoner of war, in the Vietnam War from 1965 to 1973. He was a guest of the Hanoi Hilton. Now, they didn't have any kind of you know, you know, bed service and turndown service and you know, fruit on the table for them. This was a prison camp where there were no rights, there were no rules gardening you know, or uh, guaranteeing his safety and so forth. He was tortured over 20 times over an eight-year period. Think about that, eight years he went through this torture. And so when he was finally freed, he, he wrote a book detailing all of his experiences. And then a, a, a man named Jim Collins, who wrote a book, Good to Great, a business book, read his story in preparation of, of interviewing Admiral Stockdale. And, uh, and so this is what he wrote reading, uh, you know in terms of reflecting on what he read. Jim Collins wrote this, as I moved through the book, I found myself getting depressed. It just seems so bleak. The uncertainty of his fate, the brutality of his captors, and so forth. And then it dawned on me. Here I am sitting in my warm and comfortable office, looking out the beautiful Stanford campus on a beautiful Saturday afternoon. I'm getting depressed reading this, and I know the end of the story. I know that he gets out. His life studying philosophy on the same beautiful campus. If it feels depressing for me, how on earth did he deal with it when he was actually there and did not know the end of the story? That the question he asked them. And Admiral Stockdale says this, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. Eight years in a POW camp, and he says it was the moment that defined my life that I would not trade. I didn't say anything for many minutes, and we continued to slow walk toward the faculty club, Stockdale limping and arc swinging his stiff leg that had never fully recovered from repeated torture. Finally, after about 100 meters of silence, I asked him, who didn't make it out? Oh, that's easy, he said, the optimist. The optimists, I don't understand. I said, now completely confused, given what he had said 100 meters earlier. The optimists, oh, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come, and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving. And then it'd be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. Their hope was in their circumstances. Their hope was that it would be out by this date, that we'll be in a comfortable bed, and that this will all be over with. Their hope was in the wrong place. Their hope was in something that wasn't big enough to sustain them. What we need to do is we need to place our hope in Jesus Christ and the finished work of the cross. Because no matter what we face, he's bigger. Remember, truth trusted transforms. So this morning, to kind of help us remember this, we're going to celebrate communion. So I'm going to invite Robin to come on up here and join me. And and communion is really, you know, Jesus gave this to us as a, something to celebrate often, something to do in order that we might remember that we wouldn't forget what's happened on that cross. That, that we would be constantly aware, thanks Robin, that we'd be constantly aware where our hope is placed, Jesus and the cross. That there is a new covenant that you and I are a part of now. Not one of striving and achieving and based on your hard effort and works, but based on what Jesus has done. Before we, we go and uh, enjoy some coffee and tea and, and fellowship, um, <clears throat> I want to remind us, though, that when, when we get up and leave, in fact, it's already happened. My guess is it's already been spoken to you while you're receiving communion the voice of the enemy continues. The enemy didn't die. The old you died, but the enemy is still alive. It's not you, but boy, does he like to pretend to be you. And boy, does he like to speak to you and taunt you and whisper doubt and, and question and say, well, this isn't true. This doesn't apply to you. This is true of other people. And, and so expect that he's going to continue these lies. He's going to continue to deny that Jesus has forgiven you and washed you clean. He's going to continue to deny that the new you is absolutely perfect, that the new you is enough, but not too much. The new you has what it takes. He's going to deny all that. And he's going to, he's going to speak to you in a way, trying to lure you to trust in its methods rather than Christ in you. So when you walk out of here and go, well, I still have those thoughts, I still have those doubts. Yeah, that's normal. The question isn't getting to a point where that is gone. That's not our goal. But rather the question is, will I trust in what Jesus says regardless of what the enemy says? What do I know know about Jesus and the cross? Do I trust that? Because as I trust that, it will change how I live. Because truth, trusted, transforms. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that we have your life in us and that you can speak to us. You can encourage us to the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you'll continue to do that, not just today, not just tomorrow, not just next week, but for the rest of our lives. Would you sing over us? Would you love on us? Would you encourage us? to take the risk that you are enough to be our hope and that we would have the strength and the resolve and the resiliency to face whatever this world throws at us, confident in who you are. In your name we pray, amen.